One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, author, filmmaker, and activist, Astra Taylor. So many of the things that we value about democracy have to be credited to people who were on the margins, who weren't at the center, who weren't the elite. Astra will be explaining how democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. So we're back after a long month of hiatus. I was expecting some complaints, but in addition to the well wishes, we got a lot of thanks from people who actually appreciated having some time to keep up with our episodes. There's a lot of content out there, and Team Human in particular, I think it leaves people with a whole lot to think about. So we're going to try releasing episodes every other week for a while, allowing us to put more thought into each one and hopefully allowing our listeners some time to process what we're doing. My own brief remove from the media circus has helped me to see some of what's happening a bit more clearly, I think, especially the way the mainstream media news has allowed itself to become an extension or a a reaction to Donald Trump's reality TV programming. I mean, most most of us are forgetting that Trump's main claim to fame is he was a reality TV star and producer. That's how he crafted the story of himself as a self-made billionaire. And on reality TV, 
you know, we got to remember the footage may be real or real enough. So it lends an air of authenticity to the stories, which are actually fake, right? The sequences are edited out of order. A character's lines from one scene are spliced together with someone else's dialogue from another and then made to look like a conversation. So the shots may be real, but the reality they convey is entirely up to the editor. And that's okay. It's what reality TV it. It was it was a kind of television that was made in the editing room because the writers were on strike and they couldn't do scripted television, so they needed to do the scripting afterwards based on all this footage that they had. But as long as television networks continue to passively broadcast the things that Trump recounts, the labels he creates, the factoids he tweets, then they're assembling a reality show on his behalf. He becomes the editor-in-chief and he's being given final cut. So, you know, just this month, Trump has charged uh, Attorney General uh, William Barr with selectively releasing classified information about U.S. intelligence operations. His stated objective is to construct a narrative of treason against James Comey and Andrew McCabe and some of the others even higher up. And this has nothing to do with researching what happened and conveying reality to the American public. Rather, as editor-in-chief of the reality show that's taken the place of television news, he simply releases whichever details can be juxtaposed to tell the story he wants to convey. The individual details may be real, but the product is only as real as reality TV. So likewise, in the style of Real Housewives editors, like slowing down footage in order to make some minor disagreement appear to be an all-out catfight, Trump's amateur production minions, they slow down some Nancy Pelosi footage or cut together a bunch of stammers to make her appear drunk or senile. It's perfect footage for the president and Giuliani to put in their Twitter feed and to say, oh, she's losing it. But, But it's not real. Or it's real, but not real reality TV production, it also takes the form of labeling real-world pictures with untrue text. So a photo of refugees fleeing violence in Syria, those are terrorists. Children in cages in Texas, those are animals and rapists. Nancy Pelosi, she's lost it. The trick here, as in all reality TV, is to juxtapose image to image, image to word, so that the audience can connect the dots and then form the intended narrative, as if they're participating in piecing it all together. It's the gateway drug to conspiracy theory, which is ultimately where any demagogue propagandist wants its audience to go, right? Climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the global elite to disempower American coal workers, or the the Jews are opening the borders to Mexicans who will attack our women and take our jobs release decontextualized memes in the right order, and the audience will do the rest. It may be comforting on some level to think of Trump as some sort of feckless Homer Simpson, like he's portrayed on Stephen Colbert's satirical show, Our Cartoon President, sitting glued to Fox News and CNN with a Big Mac in one hand and the remote in the other, But he's not a passive television viewer. He is the world's most influential television producer. 
He's not watching television for how he's being portrayed so much as for how his inputs are percolating through the system so he can adjust his messaging. Trump is like a living Facebook algorithm, studying how his every move translates into content, and he's fine-tuning his approach accordingly. When he watches TV, he's doing his job as he's defined it, and he's doing well. No matter the New York Times justifications to itself, a table listing Trump's favorite insults for each of the Democratic candidates is not news fit to print. The piece goes on to studiously document and link to the first time each insult was used in the manner of a, of a fan wiki, both fetishizing the name-calling and further anchoring the most policy-driven candidate, Elizabeth Warren, as a Native American slur. Worse still is when the media tries to fight back against Trump on his own terms, applying the rules of reality television to their journalism. It was a UK newspaper, The Sun, that set up the tabloid trap for Trump on the eve of his visit to London. They ambushed him with some comments by Meghan Markle that she made before she was even a royal, before he was the president. In, in response to learning that she had called him a misogynist, Trump said, he did not know that she had been nasty, but thought she'd be a great royal. And everyone from MSNBC to the New York Times, they seized solely on the word nasty, emphasizing the word in their coverage to make it seem as though Trump had called the Duchess a nasty woman. And the press went on to build up the possibility and blow-by-blow blow coverage of a lunchtime palace row between Trump and Prince Harry in the style of a Mob Wives preview. So instead of the news, we get repeated splices of the word nasty and Meghan Markle, with journalists doing the name-calling. So when Trump denies calling Markle nasty, they say he's lying. When he explains how he did use the word, they say he's enacting an Orwellian disinformation campaign. But in reality, all that's happened is that the duchess and nastiness have been effectively edited together. A new reality brought to you at least as much by a dependably outraged press as by a president who knows how to play them. He didn't even really say it. They did. I don't mean to scold anyone in the beleaguered and vilified press. I am writing in solidarity, looking at some of my fallen peers and shouting, soldiers down. These journalists have fallen prey to the Trump effect. They are complicit in something they can't even see anymore. What do I have to tell them? I guess just stop. Don't Print this stuff. Don't play this game. This is all part of the show. Stop feeding the trolls. This is a feedback loop. The news media can change everything, even Trump, by choosing to respond differently. But so can we. You're on Team Human. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. I'm Clive Thompson, and I'm on Team Human. My name's Aaron Barnes, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Frances Morlapay, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Gail Bradbrook, I'm from Extinction Rebellion, and I'm also on Team Human. I'm Thomas Koki, and I'm on Team Human. We're on Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College, and online at teamhuman.fm. I'm delighted to be back with Astra Taylor, 
who was the very first guest on Team Human when she was talking about the Debt Collective, an effort that emerged out of Occupy and is still going strong, where they used donated funds to purchase people's debt from the credit agencies at pennies on the dollar and then just forgive it, effectively erasing hundreds of millions of dollars of debt and unburdening thousands of people, not just from the medical or education bills that they owe, which have been long paid, but the usurious debt that's been added on top by ruthless lenders. She's been an inspiration and comrade in the war against stupidity and exploitation. Her movie uh, Zizek about the philosopher is uh, still a great inspiration. And her new film, What is Democracy?, as well as her book, Democracy May Not Exist, But Will Miss It When It's Gone, uh, they remind me of just how valuable a voice, mind, and heart uh, she has been to me. You were the first, the first Team Human episode. You know, and I was thinking, yeah, we were the first Team Human, and, and uh, you know. You and Tom Goki. And me and Tom Goki. Yeah. And, then, and Tom is like, talk about a good human being, man. Yeah. That guy is like out there liberating people one by one from their from their dead birth. And he gets no glory. He gets no glory. I don't mean that in a bad way, but he gets no glory. I know. It's interesting. But he's not, he's not a media person. He is. Yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's, like, a, he's like a weird saint. There's a few out there, though, that are like that. Uh, you know, Esteban Kelly. Mm-hmm. See, I don't know. Uh, yeah, well, because he's a saint. Because he's a saint. Esteban he does um, uh, freelance worker unions, alliance, you know, like the, 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 the women at uh, uh, National Association of Domestic, whatever yeah, that. Domestic Workers Union thing, yeah. Again, it's just do it. Just do the work, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think this is why, like, for me, you know, it's like I try to, Get the attention I have able to capture, and then you know, give Thomas a livelihood doing what is like his calling on earth, right? Which is to help debtors and to be the debt detective. And he's living his dream, man. It's really great yeah. to see someone do the work they're meant to do on the planet. Yeah, because, you know, I'm more existential and effectively more up and down as you are. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, like more of a creative temperament that's right, material. which is fine. We're useful in our way. <laughs> We are, and it's interesting. I, I, I see myself in your stuff, and I don't mean yeah. oh, a crypt. I mean a, a, a resonant. So Kindred I, spirits, man. Yeah. So I'm reading your book on democracy, and not to take it off topic, but it reminded me. I wrote this book on Judaism, which I've never read because I don't know and, shit about religion. Right. It, it was okay. It's like 2000. I wrote yeah. this book on Judaism, and partly because. I had written something before. I wrote an article on Judaism way back when called The Sabbath Revolt mm-hmm. for Adbusters, mm-hmm. arguing that the, the, the workers' revolution can start by taking Sabbath. That's One-seventh rule. Yeah. And it was all that. So I wrote that. Then all Judaism came at me saying, oh, you can make Judaism hip again. You can help us oh, wow. because Jews are marrying out of Judaism and they're not going to synagogue and all this bad stuff. Okay. So please, write, do something. Save. So... I thought it was such a pathetic thing. I ended up writing this book. I investigated Judaism for a few years, really went deep, went to synagogue every every Friday and Saturday and read all, not all, but thousands of pages of stuff and concluded that there, the modern notion of fidelity to Judaism yeah. was fidelity to this thing. Okay. And what I was trying to explain, that Judaism is not a noun. Judaism is a verb. That that if you're going to have fidelity to Judaism, then you have to have fidelity to the Jewish process, 
which is a process of interrogating things in an ongoing way. And every generation must ask, what is Judaism for us? How do we do Judaism? That's not what they wanted, was it, though? Oh, it's not at all. <laughs> but the central premise is, to me, is what you're saying about democracy, that we keep looking at democracy as this thing it's not this thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's this... I think it's a temperamental view. It's like, are you someone who's kind of a Libra, right? You know, like, are you someone who's like, you know, we got to balance the things on the scales, like, you know, and, and who thinks that knowing 100% what something is is actually really dull, right? Like, and dangerous. And dangerous. It's dull and it's dangerous, you know? And so you have to reassess. But I think it's a, te- I'm not surprised that that was your, your analysis because I think we have a similar temperament, yeah. which is like, Complexity, we cannot be afraid of complexity. We should be afraid of certainty. Like what's more, right. it's actually a bigger risk. Certainty is death. Right, certainty is death. And so if that's your kind of paradigm, which it is ours, but yeah. a lot of people no. don't agree. You know? They're like, uncertainty is scary. It's the abyss. It's like, who knows what will happen? It's not control. Right, you know? right. which yeah. is part of why I left the theater. Because everyone wanted plays with endings. Oh yeah, no. And I'm more, I'm like David Lynch. Like, don't tell me, what, if I know what it's about, then it was bad. Yeah, well, this, well, this may, well, you might like the movie for that reason, in the sense that it's got no conventional narrative. Beautiful. Like, because my mind doesn't work like that. My mind doesn't work like beginning, middle, end. It just doesn't. Right. It's like plateaus or whatever, or like unfoldings, or, you know, that's just, it's not that I'm avant-garde by choice. It's just like, it's not avant-garde. It's just more like, no tidy endings. I know. It also feels, and I know this is way oversimplified, but it feels more like a little more female than male. I totally know. Well, you know? I really see that. And we can talk about the gendered aspect too, because I really think that I, I do see myself more, it's more in the film than in the book, but really being like, I'm an intellectual and there is a feminism to the mode of intellectual engagement. Yes. In other words, because I see being an intellectual as asking questions and that not being the, the weaker position, but actually being... Right, like I feel like we've, we've the masculine mode says the answer is what matters, right? The the person with the microphone, right? And I feel like a feminist mode of being an intellectual is no, the, let's ask questions, let's listen, let's be receptive, right? Let's but learn. The, but the people that are asking the questions or interrogating the reality now, it's as if we're the hecklers. I know, but I guess that's Socratic too, the gadfly. I guess, but I don't want it to be the, we're, I mean, at best for the counterculture and where's the counterculture yeah. even now? Well, that's another thing you and I both love too, is like total, we do identify with like the freaks, you know, which is like, right, just being like, yeah, I'm unabashedly counterculture. I'm unabashedly bohemian. Fuck it. <laughs> right. And shoot me, you know, it's like, that's where, that's where I'm at. But you felt right. that it was boring to be in a, it wasn't that it was boring to act the same part over and over. It was the ending that bothered you. Like, just that it was like these To direct plays that have to dance, boy, you know, and then and come crisis, climax, conclusion, that they want their catharsis and release. They want to know they're coming to the play as a substitute for social action rather than as a trigger for it. Oh, oh, I sat through all of Angels in America. That means I've paid my debt to AIDS. Yeah, no, I agree. But it's, it's I think it's fun. It's actually, it's like that that type of narrative structure. It just literally doesn't do it for me. Right. I mean, it's not. It's just more that my brain doesn't think that way. No, but that's like capitalism works likes that. Capitalism does really like that. No, the ending, no. the thing, and the, the the fireworks at the end, and yeah. it, you know it's over. You got your money's worth. But it's funny. The whole movie, which we will not talk about, because but we know. can. But no, but it's like it actually began with. Because more people will watch this movie than read the book. I think so. Well, and also because the book is kind of unreadable. But um, not at all. But, but, you know, I didn't, 
the initial seed was I don't want the movie to end in a certain way. I didn't want it to end on a false note of like this kumbaya catharsis. Right. So I reverse engineered the movie based on what I didn't want the end to be because I didn't want that kind of uh-huh. exactly. Like I'm just that what you just described. Every time I see it in a documentary, I feel so cheated. Right. Yeah. It's like okay, now turn on the music. Your heartstrings are getting pulled by a violin. Well, because all these narrative people tell us if you don't give people the appropriate hope at the end, then they won't, you know, fight climate change and bad stuff. Right. I mean, you know, I, t- I put in a little dash of hope at the yeah. end. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but there's two main points to this that are so, to me, appropriate and team human-esque. One is that democracy is this perpetual question. Yeah. It's a question keep asking it never and that's the sort of wandering jew you know yeah. always questioning turning over the rocks and that that our fidelity to democratic values is not our fidelity to some rule of law it's our fidelity to the question 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 I totally agree with that 100% and the second one which is the twin to this is that the answers will always be in contradiction they will always be in contradiction get get with it people Exactly. Can you sustain paradox or not? Yes. And if you can't... I'm so happy to talk to you because they ask me the boringest questions about democracy. I'm like, okay, I don't know. Yes, people should vote. Well, good. So I had lunch with a famous, unnamed Secretary of State about 10 years ago who said to me, so are you, have you, do you finally agree that democracy was a failed experiment? What? Right. His point was, now that we have Fox News and all these stupid people, and people are just fooled into voting, it's a popularity contest, whoever has yeah. the most money, do you agree that people, that this was, that this was silly? And I didn't have an answer for him until I read your book, because your book would be saying, yeah, it's problematic, isn't it? It's like, no, I haven't given up, but boy, isn't this a challenge? Exactly. Right. Like what, what do you, but it's like, what is your standard that some perfect world that, that reality can never meet? I mean, it's such a, it's that, that comment is so cynical on so many levels. So it also is like, okay, so what are you proposing as the alternative that people just like you rule? Right. That a benevolent elite rule. That just happens to resemble you, have your sensibilities, have your values, right? Like that's a fucking fantasy, dude. Right. Well, I guess the idea would be Go to Harvard, Princeton, yeah, wherever the children of the elite are going to school, add some ethics to it. So when they step into the role that their money allows them to have, they are benevolent dictators. I can't believe that. Well, some of the people yeah. in the book argue that. You know, you kind of have this, the, the, you, didn't, you, you didn't use Simone Boulevard for it, but it reminded me of his whole argument that, you know, the, these, these understandings of, 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 of human beings, well, it was Hobbes even. You know, uh, human beings are kind of childlike and yeah. surrender their parental authority to somebody. Well, I'm not against criticisms of democracy. Democracy, by definition, allows for its own undoing, right? Because what you're doing is you're inviting the people, whoever the people are, to debate and to challenge the system that they're living under. So, right. you know, democracy in ancient Athens made Plato's anti-democratic musings possible. It was only because they were a democracy that he could then issue these right. criticisms that so resonate today. Only because we're only because we're a democracy can we get Trump. 
Yes. Although exactly. we could probably get them the other way around too, but I mean, yeah. the thing is like, you know, and, and but there are all sorts of complexities to that. Because there are all <laughs> sorts of undemocratic structures that facilitated the rise right. of Trump. But I think there have been, there are sometimes, um, so, so there's the documentary film, What is Democracy? And occasionally after showing the film, a person, typically a man, will come up to me and say, well, do you really believe in democracy? Kind of like your secretary of state. Right. And I feel like the, I, I feel like it's just such a glib um, question because, you know, I feel like institutionalizing a benevolent dictatorship is, is a far more difficult proposition than figuring out how we're going to equitably share power and to come to some, some decisions that are generally good, that right. generally meet a condition of the common good, right? So it's just, you know, so I try very hard in the book not to present an overly rosy picture of the people, you know, and to romanticize them. Right. But to also try to imagine, okay, what are the conditions that would 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 lead to better, more equitable, more egalitarian, more inspiring outcomes. So, you know, yeah, I I mean the people are not perfect. That's reality. You know? But that's what we have to deal with. I don't know. Right. So, so this idea We're of, here. Yeah, we're here. So this is <laughs> and we've seen where where we've seen what happens when you you give all the power to an elite or to a single right. person. You know? We we know that we know the end of that story, but we don't really know the end of the story of democracy. Right. And I, we can be hopeful. You know, we can be hopeful at least. I I I would agree. I mean, a lot of people have tried. I mean, I think that the Secretary of State was thinking more in terms of like uh you know, Walter Lippmann sort of model of public opinion that you have government, you have some kind of council of experts, which I don't know where you get them. You know, the council of experts tell the politicians what to do, PR people tell the public what to do, and the public has a very small feedback loop of voting through which they can, mm -hmm. you know. Right, through the, which they can kind of almost just signal their acquiescence. Right. Versus actually actively make contributions to government. Right. I guess my, you know, and this is this is my bias towards outsiders, and, and you share this bias too, a bias towards the counterculture, but it seems to me that so many of the, the things that we value about democracy have to be credited to people who were on the margins, who weren't at the center, who weren't right. the elites, right? When we think, what, what's good about democracy? Okay, well, it's inclusive. Well, that wasn't an idea that came from the people who were already included. It came from people who were, were not. Who were not. It came from people who were enslaved. It came from people who were dispossessed. It came from women who were not recognized right. as full and equal citizens. And these are not the people who came up with democracy even. I mean, if anything, you're, that's the, another one of the, the, the great kind of uh, uh, dynamics you, you keep coming back to is, you know, democracy and equality seem to be at odds with each other. Yeah. Well, there are a lot of things that are at odds. In, and so that's the whole thing of the book, right? Yeah. It's like there's... The book is an exploration of democracy's contradictions and paradoxes. And so why did I settle on this? You know, I, on the one hand, I want to issue a corrective to the people who view democracy as a noun, as a thing, and as a set of procedures, right? Like political scientists do this all the time. They're like, democracy is free and fair elections. It's right. freedom of the press. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's sort of these, these baseline metrics. And... And so I'm not saying those things aren't valuable. I think constitutional rights are valuable. I think elections that are free and fair would be a nice thing to have. I don't think we have them. But democracy is, is it has all of these, these elements that are in contradiction. And, and for me, thinking about them actually is rooted in my experience as an activist, right? It's from trying to 
work with others to fight for a more just system that I was like, why the fuck is it so hard to do this democracy thing? Like even within our tiny little group, mm. let alone like on the level of the state, <laughs> you know, why between us is it actually hard to share power? And so for me coming to this realization, like, okay, well, there just are these aspects of it that are necessarily contradictory. Like how do you balance freedom and equality? How do you balance the need for a structure with the need to be spontaneous? How do you balance the need to have choice with the fact that once in a while you have to coerce people? Right. <laughs> right? How do you do balance the need for majority rule with the need for minority rights? Right. Like these are things, and, and we just, we have to live in those, those tensions. And so for me, the book is partly me coming to terms with how maddening the process is. Because I think the alternative is not facing these contradictions head on and seeing that they're part of the process. The alternative then is to go like, oh, well, this democracy thing's a pain in the ass, so we should have you know, the smart right. people decide. Right, but what you're doing, you're trying, I think what you're trying to do is to train the reader, to train the movie viewer, to be able to contend with the paradox and see it as intrinsic to democracy rather than as something to be expunged from it. True, exactly, and intrinsic to democracy and generative. So there's right. a kind of dialectical energy that I get from these paradoxes. It's not, it's not that they need to be expunged, and it's also not that we're just like, oh, shit, we're going to have to live with them. It's like, how can, how can we recognize them and then create conditions under which these tensions are more productive than destructive? So the thread through the entire book is that under conditions of extreme inequality, economic and social inequality, these tensions can become unbearable. Right, but if we were able to create different conditions, then perhaps we could balance them better or use them in a way that's more, more constructive. Right. So I think you can see this really clear in the t in the chapter. So one of the tensions I look at, and it was the most fun chapter to write, is the chapter on time at the end. Uh -huh. So what is democracy's relationship to time? Which is great because I just had a uh, uh, I just did an interview with this uh, virtual reality artist who's a Native American. And I was asking her about, is there time to be doing virtual reality when we've got the climate emergency? And then she says, well, I don't believe in time. Oh. And I was like, oh my God. But it made me think of the chapter of this whole idea of, of yeah. you know, the, the, the almost this false sense of urgency that keeps yeah. coming at us. Well, you, I mean, you wrote a whole book about this called yeah. Pre um, present, present, shock. present Shock, right? Yeah. This idea of presentism. And I, I mentioned the phrase presentism and I thought of you when I wrote it because I think there's, and, and I think it's, it's very much the political time we're in now in this moment of Trump perpetual emergency. Right. So presentism is coming at us from all of these angles, as you right. showed. I mean, social media is also the business model is now, 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 now. Um, but I think that, you know, time is a challenge for, for democracy. I mean, democracy deliberation takes a lot of time. And yet we also have to respond to crises and, and be swift about it. The, the temporal dimension, I think, for me, most poetically comes through in the fact that we live under rules made by people who are dead, who are no longer with us. So the dead are, certain members of the dead are very enfranchised. The founding fathers of this country have a very outsized vote compared right. to someone like me. And yet the people who haven't been born yet, seven generations out, you know, don't don't have a say in our in our political system. So I think under under the conditions we're in now, where we have a sense of scarcity because wealth is so concentrated, it feels very hard to think ahead and imagine how we could create a sustainable economy for seven generations. Right. I know, but you right? say right there in there, you say um, um, what would happen if we thought of ourselves as ancestors. Yeah. And so <laughs> you know, right. and just... I think a more I think a more equitable yeah. economy would allow us that 
space to do that. Right. You know, right. Instead of having to think, fuck, how do I pay my medical bill? How do I pay my rent? This how do I pay month. my kids? This right. month. Right. Like scarcity and inequality cause us to be presentist in a, in a sense. In the negative way. Yeah. In a negative way, in a way that I'm sympathetic to because people have to, have to, you know, survive instead of thinking. Hand to mouth. But it's yeah. not the Buddhist Tao now I'm in the moment. It, you don't even, you don't have the luxury of the moment. Exactly. And so I think this is where, you know, these tensions like become uh, more crushing under certain arrangements in a certain moment. So that's why I'm saying, you know, the tensions I think can be ameliorated isn't quite the word, but I think they could be transformed right. in a different in a different future. And that's why I say democracy is a process. We, we don't know what the challenges would be in a world where we're not, where most people aren't living hand to mouth. Right. But even those of us who are not living hand to mouth are triggered to behave as if we are by a media that is, you know, hitting our, our, our amygdala all yes. the time. Well, and because the fact is in a world where there's no universal health care and there's no public pensions, you better have a big cushion so that you can and retire no one, and live with dignity. <laughs> no one I know, except the occasional billionaire I meet, can really, would be able to make it unscathed through a major fire or yeah. cancer. You know, a catastrophic illness, any one of us is one catastrophic illness in our immediate family away from... Disaster. Yeah. Disaster. Yeah. So I think it is the media and I think it is, you know, a function of, of our economy. But yeah. I think that, you know, that's what I'm trying to get with these tensions is, yes, they're they're with us and and we should face them and try to create conditions under which they can be more productive and, and through which we can recognize different components of them. I mean, I think, you know, for me, the question of the one about coercion and, and choice, this right. question... You know, it's one I think I only began to scrape the surface of, of the challenge it poses. I think one way of framing the question of democracy is when is coercion legitimate? Right? Like, who's deciding right. who gets to be coerced and when? Um, and, you know, that it's not, that's like so far from our democratic debate right now. Right? I mean, right now we're, I don't know, we're talking about 2020, 24 hours a day. Yeah. <laughs> but not these... Not these bigger questions about yeah how how we are actually going to to live together. Well, and part of it, and as you as you you disinter in this in this very short and entertaining book, is that democracy wasn't designed to be democratic, or the U.S. democracy wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, but which know. is it? I it it was hard. I mean, you 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 basically tell the story of how the the poor American worker could live with the economic injustice because at least he wasn't a slave. Yes. <laughs> right. And, and, we, and he got to vote. Right. Yeah. So, you know, freedom for some was predicated on the freedom. It meant it basically meant the freedom to enslave and to take indigenous territory. Right. I mean, and this is this is the truth of, of American history. Or, or if you look at, if you look at, you know, Athenian democracy, which is held up as this ideal, right? It was like freedom for a certain subset of people who were taken to be citizens was based on enslavement. It wasn't racialized the way it was in the United States, but, but the enslavement of a huge number of people and, um, you know, the dehumanization of women and the exclusion of foreigners. I mean, so this is, but this is the thing where you can't, I guess, you know, there's this part of me that's like, but you also can't discount the past. It's not that cliche of like, don't judge the past by the standards of our day, yeah. you know? 
because there were visionaries. I mean, you know, yeah. people like Benjamin Benjamin Franklin was friends with this amazing guy named Benjamin Laid. You know Benjamin mm -hmm. Laid? He didn't he didn't make it in the book, but he was this Quaker British dwarf, so a disabled activist who is this who came to Philadelphia was a radical vegan who even refused to ride on horseback, so he'd only he'd walk everywhere, but is almost single-handedly responsible for Quakers turning against slavery. So here was this guy who was a radical abolitionist, a vegetarian, <laughs> you know, a militant egalitarian. He 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 invented basically a um, political theater, right? He would like you know fling uh, fake blood on on the person uh, on the people in the in the church. I don't do Quakers go to church. They go to a meeting hall. They go to a meeting Friends hall. Friends hall, yeah. Anyway, so, you know, I mean, there were people, some people in the past really got it. They were really woke, you know, yeah. before their time. So I think, and, and uh, but at the same time, there was a precious, uh, you know, Cornel West says this in my, in, my, in my film, actually, in the film, What is Democracy? He says, highly limited but precious democratic experiment. So there is an element in the past, you know, that we, we have to honor the breakthrough while also seeing that it was truncated, that it needed to be radically expanded, that doors needed to be knocked down. Right. We can do both at once. Yeah. I mean, otherwise, how can you read the Bible if you can't do that? It's like they're trying. They're like basically cave people. I've never you read know? the Bible. Oh, it's really intense. <laughs> but they're like so mean. They're like throwing rocks at each other and stuff. I mean, they're really bad. It's like, oh, shit. She just, you know, <laughs> fuck someone we don't like. Stone her to death. You know, it's like, and then there'll be like the person who goes, well, maybe we shouldn't stone her to death. What? But that's at least the beginning of social justice, you know? <laughs> right. Well, it's also like this attitude of, well, where are we in the historical arc? Because right. if we flatter ourselves and think we're at the end, oh. and we're just looking back with this, you know, lucidity, and, and all we kind of have to do is implement all of our great ideas, then, then, then that gives us a sort of license to be very condescending yeah. to everybody who came before us. But, you know, I like to think that we're actually still in the democratic dark ages. We are. But, right. And then th that's why what you do, without scolding us in the book, though, you, you open the door again and again to, um, like, you, you, you make the implicit comparison between the way founding fathers thought about black people to the way we think about women. You know, sort of, it's sort of an ongoing, so, you know, white people got, you know, and you call it the psychological wage of not being slaves. And then if slaves, it makes me think, well, if slaves are ever truly freed in America, meaning if we weren't persecuting black, well, how would white people mm -hmm. be okay with, it's like, then what would white people have? It's in the, well, then you're going to see that you're oppressed too. Or if women were ever truly equal, how, how are men, how can we help men deal with that? Because they've been, they've been living off the fact. Yeah, it's like, well, yeah, I might be poor, but at least I'm not black, or at least I'm not, I'm a, not woman, a woman, or at least I'm not an immigrant. I think another element that's only hinted at in the book is, you know, well, at least I'm not an animal, right? Because this is a metaphor we often go to, like, right. you treat me like this, I'm not an animal, I'm human right. too, you know? So, Will, uh, Ingalls even has this sort of quote. He's imagining, you know, Marx of Marx and Engels. I'm sorry, Ingalls of Marx and Ingalls. And he has this quote where he says something like, he's imagining, you know, workers of the world uniting. And he, he has this vision that I find really sad where he says, and all of humanity united against nature and animals <laughs> and like against, against the outside world. And to me, you know, it's like, I, I hope one day that we won't have to find unity in an enemy, right? Um, right. But, but right now we do. And so my point is if we do, if we have to name the source of our 
are um, suffering, then let's 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 name the people who are doing the exploiting. Right? It's not it's not racialized people. It's not women. It's not immigrants. It's the people who own the capital, the people who have the most economic power in this world, right? So right, getting us to fight with each other, getting to us to fight over scraps. Well, you know, they, I mean, I the average person, I do not think, has any realistic comprehension of just how rich the richest people in the world are today. Like what a billion dollars actually is, how many zeros that is. And but there's a bunch of them. There's a couple of thousand <laughs> billionaires now. And there's a few that. Which should be, that should be, that's egalitarian. Well, There's a couple of thousand right, of them. <laughs> a couple of them aren't white. No. Yeah, but it was you know, like, wasn't it two families or something in America own like 50% of the wealth? Or? Yes, I think it's three. Three. Yeah. You know, three. That's okay. <laughs> three of them already. There'll be four or five in no time. No, they'll be down to one. That's the thing. Yeah, well, that's no. the thing. It is. It's a poker game. Is there, this is parallel dynamics in a digital, I mean, back to your left, to platform, uh, uh, people's platform. It's, it, this is, or it was called People's Platform? Yeah, People's, yeah, platform. People's platform. is is that we're in this poker game of parallel dynamics being kind of uh, spun out of control by the digital economy. So yeah, it is going to be one guy with all the money at the end. Yeah. What's interesting, I mean, you know, there are themes that echo between the two books, between the People's Platform and this one. But part of why I wanted to take on this project of democracy was to get away from thinking about digital technology right. so much. I wonder if that's I, if you feel that way in your work too, that's why I moved like, to Team Human. Human, yeah, right. To say what's really going on on the ground between people. I mean, Team Human. The whole thing is just the the in a nutshell is rapport is a prerequisite for solidarity. Mm-hmm. Is all I'm saying. So if we can't look at each other in the eye, we 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 are we are we are discarding five hundred thousand years of uh, or organically evolved mechanisms for. Uh, uh, for bonding, that's our only hope against the tyranny of the elite. Yeah, and for me, I felt you know technology. I tried to weave it into the book when appropriate, when it felt like a yeah. valid example, but to not use it, not to give it explanatory force. I don't think it deserves, which you know it's getting right. a lot of right now in the wake of the election. Right? Okay, so what's the problem with democracy? Facebook, Facebook, right? Oh, the Russians news. and Facebook. And it's yes. like, well, yeah, I know that's the other beautiful thing about this. It's like it was never democracy was never here. Well, I mean, you know, how could you or possibly, always? You how know? could you possibly? This is, so okay. So let's let's be a bit critical of the current debate right now mm-hmm. because part of what frustrates me in the book and the movie were not reactions to this because it didn't exist yet, but there has been a wave of publishing after Trump's victory that is basically a lament for our democracy. So of course the biggest question is like whose democracy, right? But it's, the norms are being eroded. Um, right. Our democracy is under threat. Our democracy is dying. And to these people, I think implicitly, my work poses a challenge of like, okay, whose democracy are we discussing right. here? And and what what long democratic tradition are we referring to? Because you know the Voting Rights Act was passed. Like people were are still alive who were like adults fighting for that. I right. Mean, that is in in the scope of human history. It was we have barely been democratic for not even a human's lifespan, you know? I mean, we still don't have an equal rights amendment that bring women and other minorities officially into the fold as full equals. So it's like, what? No, I know. Why are we so nostalgic Exactly, for? there's 1970s and 80s sitcoms I can't let my kid watch because it was so insane just 30, 40 years right. ago. I mean, so it's like, to me, it's like, you know, let's, 
let's just not get so romantic about the past. Like that's holding us, that whole right. attitude is holding us back because what we need is a breakthrough, right? We do not need to be hoping or praying or fighting for a regression. I just right, so then leverage so the moment again. So, okay, look at this weird, crazy moment, and alt-right and yeah. frogs, and how do we leverage that to reach another... Uh, another plateau. Right. Right, in the democratic unfolding, you know? So I think that, you know, and this is, this is also why the book doesn't end with sort of 10 prescriptions for, for taking back our democracy. I mean, there are things that I think are very obvious that I'm sure you would like, that I would like, that lots of reformers would like. I'd like an end to gerrymandering and independent, you know, redistricting. Mm -hmm. I'd like to get money out of politics. You know, I'd like to see the electoral college done away with. But it's like the problem is 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 deeper than right. these procedural fixes. But and it's even for people to understand, though, that it is going to be a balance. So it's like, I remember um, Mr. Feig was my uh, AP American history teacher. He's the same one that Aaron Sorkin had. We were in the same class together. He went West Wing and romantic with it, and I went radical, <laughs> you know. Really funny. Radical <laughs> counterculture with it. But he did this thing when, I, I mean, I was a kid, right? 11th grade, whatever it was. And uh, uh, he said, who believes in majority rule? And I raised my hand, majority rule, majority rule. And then he goes, okay, who wants Doug Rushkoff to do their homework for them tonight? Everybody's here. And the whole class raised their hands. And then he looks at me, so you still believe in majority rule? That's you know, pretty genius. Though. It was. And he was trying to teach, okay, electoral college, maybe something like that, or representative, or some other, you know, mm -hmm. how do you protect the minority? In, but what, what racked my brain was we talked about all these things the whole week, and there was no answer. Right. There was no final answer. So it's like, okay, so everything we try is going to be some compromise. It's going to... Yeah. But I think that that's... I mean, I think that that's... There's, there's a, that's a brilliant teachable moment, right? It's right. Like, okay, so, right, majority rule can't be this one-size-fits-all solution to every situation. Right. Um, you know, in the book, I talk more to my radical anarchist idealistic friends who believe that we should go to consensus, which is, you know, this idea that, okay, but let's just deliberate forever until everyone comes to an agreement. Right. The sort of more um, Lumio style. Right. Yeah. Like direct democracy, yeah. but with this incredible high bar. And, you know, and that can also... Uh, it's beautiful. It can be beautiful when it works, when people are friends and have a yeah. name, but when there's actual sort of conflict in the group, it can totally destabilize and become the tyranny of a couple people who refuse to agree. Right. Right. Because so they block. Get, right. Because they block. They veto. So then you actually get the opposite of the intended outcome. But that that's is always, if people are not entering the process in good faith, but they're gaming the system, then democracy is a game that can be thwarted like any other. Yeah, and that's and and that's just always going to be part of the process. So I think yeah. we, we have to try to create incentives where, where people are incentivized at least to engage in as good faith as possible. So right now we have a political system where people are really incentivized to you know, serve their donors instead of their constituents or to just worry only about re-election so they don't take big risks. So I think, you know, I, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, there are procedures I would endorse as I think having better outcomes, but I don't think there's any, I, there's, there are no procedures that are going to do away with all of the human problems. And well, especially, and they're going to be provisional solutions to today's problem. Right. You know, and it's like if we have the sort of these these higher, even if fuzzy ideals of democracy and realize that the way we're going to 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 facilitate democracy is going to change based on our where we're doing it and when. 
what what the yeah what the underlying conditions are like again what the economic conditions how how unequal are people like are people even participating as equals or does right. one person have other forms of power i mean one thing i've been thinking about is just how you know sort of because our world is so messed up we're stuck dealing with really boring democratic problems so one one thing i got to at the end of this book was you know if we could if we could sort of take the next step and push into a, a more equal social order, call it democratic socialism, call it whatever you want, right? Our democratic conversations, I think, would get a lot more interesting. So, right. you know, right now we have to, um, you know, deal with these these very retrograde battles, like, okay, you know, against misogynists who don't think women are fully human, against right. racists who think immigrants deserve to be held in cages, or against billionaires who think they literally deserve all of the fruits of all of the labor of everyone they employ in the surrounding communities. Yeah. So I'm, I'm always like, God, if we could just find, if we could all just agree that billionaires shouldn't exist, women are human, <laughs> racism should be, you know, then at least from the face right. of the earth, we could actually then have really interesting, substantive democratic conversations. Like, again, when is coercion legitimate? How do we plan the economy in a way that actually allows for local control? Right. A world where there are global repercussions from our work. Right. When right? do we accept that science might be factual? Yeah. Like, yeah. right. Or in, in, you know, how, how do we set up procedures that, um, that mitigate against some of the problems of majority rule or, or the idealism of consensus? Right. Like, so there are all these conversations that just aren't on the table or they're on the margins of the table because, you know, we have these, these other battles that we understandably have to focus on. But that's why it feels like our job art then starts to feel essential mm -hmm. to this because what we're talking about is i mean there's all, you, you you take people through all of the, not all but many of the various paradoxes in democracy not to say here now i've solved democracy for you go out yeah. and take these new nine points and vote with them or don't do referendums do do referendums i mean you you argue for them then you argue against them and you argue for them again and then yeah. you say well we really can't they work sometimes don't they and they don't yeah and to train people to be there seems to me to be the, that's the role of the artist in society, to help somehow, to help people tolerate ambiguity. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Be able to enjoy it and work with it. And yeah, I really agree with that. So you know, I often think that I have two, two hats, right? Two, two sensibilities in myself. And one is the organizer. So this is the Astra of the first Team Human interview. Right. The Debt Which if you haven't heard it, yeah, Debt Collective, which is now... You've hit over a billion dollars. Yes, over a billion dollars of debt relief. So I think to me, you know, that's the part where I go, we need to build power. We need to build power. We need to have a strategy. We need to find the levers uh, in government, in the private sector that we can pull, that we can pressure for change. We need to remake the rules. It's a, it's a sort of reactive sensibility. It's a sensibility that is pragmatic and that it works with what is here. And, and it's playing a power game. Mm-hmm. I see this as the other side of me, which is artistic and philosophical. And for me, philosophy, so I think I really like what you just said about the artist, helping people live with ambiguity, right? I mean, if something just simplifies something, it's not art, it's a Hallmark card, right? Right. If you're draining it of its complexity and its multidimensionality, then you're doing the opposite of art. So Right, you're delivering it to the market or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so when you, in, when you issue a directive, right, even as an organizer, like, everybody, you know, <laughs> tweet at 2 p.m., yeah. you know, or, or march here. Like, that's not art. Right. And that's fine. It's, it's necessary. But, you know, philosophy also is about 
Philosophy fundamentally is about turning things into questions. I really think that that's what philosophy does. It's about taking things we thought we knew, we thought we understood, and making them strange. Saying, ah, oh, you actually don't know. You think you know this word democracy, but you actually right. don't. You think you know what truth is, you use that word as you're living out your day, you actually have no idea what you're talking about. Right, which is the funnest thing, I mean, as, as a professor, it's the funnest thing, whatever class I'm doing, you know, if I'm doing a digital technology, first day of class, what's digital? Right. And everybody's like, huh? <laughs> it's like, you know, one yeah. can define it. Yeah, you know? well, maybe it's your fingers, there right. are digits, exactly. the original digits. I mean, to see things anew, to try to make things strange again, right. is the role of a good, I think a good teacher, is the role of an artist, is the role of a philosopher. So that's why, you know, that's why I try in a way that hopefully isn't annoying, but is, is evocative to say, okay, you think you have a grasp on this thing, and you think you know what the outcomes will be. Okay, but let's twist it again and see it from another angle. Let's twist right. it from yet another angle. The thing that I think is consistent in terms of just being a sort of ethical, political critique is the attention to class. You know, so, so right. in all of these paradoxes in the book, so, you know, again, structure, spontaneity, freedom, equality, you know, the, the present and the future, you know, class is there. And but class is not its own paradox or chapter because I don't think the divide between the rich and the poor is an eternal paradox of democracy. I think that's a function of capitalism, a function of our economic system. I can imagine a world where that polarity is reconciled and where people live and, and have generally the same means. I mean, we know that that was the way human beings existed for a lot of ancient history right you know relatively egalitarian tribes so it's not it's not a fact of i don't think the um the massive inequality that we see in our economy is one of these tensions i see it as a distorting factor but is the fact that democracy can coexist with all of this inequality does that mean democracy is not the path to reach equality in other words is it one of the tools that we use to get to equality or is it something else I think it is because, well, I think one of the most elegant, elegant definitions, elegant and eloquent definitions of democracy comes from Aristotle. And he wasn't saying this in a good way because he was a critic. But he said, democracy is rule of the poor. Democracy is rule of the poor because the poor always outnumber the rich. Right. They wouldn't be rich if they were the majority. They'd just be average. <laughs> and so I think there's something, you know, I think this is why elites have always feared democracy. I mean, there was... The, the 20th century was interesting, like the mid 20th century, the Cold War era, because democracy became this useful counterpoint to the, to, you know, the, the threat of communism. Or, and fascism right and before fascism, that. Right, and fascism, right, fascism before so that. So Margaret Mead and, Jack, and Bateson talking about choice. And of course, you do a great chapter on choice in here, which is, it was like something I did for a digital book. I, I said, you, may, you are always free to choose none of the above. You know, where you're talking about forced choice as if you're in a democracy, you get to pick which toilet paper strategy you want, you know. Exactly, yeah. you got a lot of choice on that, point, yeah. you know, but you don't get to pick <laughs> no. capitalism. That is not no. an offer. But, you know, so I think that that's, uh, that we took that as kind of the, like, as though it was eternal, this idea that, that democracy was, was freedom and democracy is something that elites wanted. But I, I, I think that's really breaking down in the post-Cold War era we now find ourselves in. Right? They never wanted it. As long as yeah. they could choose with their parties which candidates we could vote for, yeah. they didn't really much matter. Right. And democracy just became this really nice 
buzzword that distinguished us from the other way of doing things, which was like the condition of equality run amok, you know, and, and, and state right. control. And so we are the free enterprise democratic system. Right. Which is the positive thing about, I mean, I hate to say it like this, but it's one of the positive things about Trump is that it does demonstrate that democracy is in some ways less controllable by the standard bearers than mm -hmm. we thought. I mean, maybe in the Democratic Party, it was still functioning, right? So Bernie can't, didn't get his fair shake because the gatekeepers were there. In the Republican Party, their gatekeepers, they failed. They were asleep at the switch. They couldn't stop this thing. And it was like, I remember when People Magazine used to, they, they, they let the readers vote on Sexiest Man of the Year. And in the early 90s, Howard Stern started a campaign for his listeners to keep voting for Hank the Angry Dwarf to be the, and he won the vote, but then people said, you know, even though he won, it's not going to count. A recent example is how I think the British public had the chance to name a boat, and they called it Boaty McBoatface. <laughs> but I think people often issue protest votes when yeah. they know the conditions are ridiculous. You know, or they, they and, and I think we're seeing that in these referendums, you know, across uh, the world. We're seeing that with Trump, at least the voters I spoke to. I mean, one guy in the film, the film opens essentially with this young man saying, you know, Trump was the hand grenade that we could throw in the system. You know, very much saying it was a, a sort of protest vote. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I think... Certainly, the the gatekeepers of the Republican Party failed, but I think what it was as the vote was as much as sort of um, frustration with what passes for democracy. It was a, an expression of democracy, right? Because the thing, as we all know, we knew Trump was never going to deliver. But you know, it's worth remembering that one of the things that was front center in his campaign was just he was this anti-war candidate. Obama too, two thousand eight, right? They ran on these strong anti-war platforms. Majority of people voted for them. That is absolutely not what they, they, they got. So, right. you know, we're, you know, I'm Russell. I still haven't really figured out what I think about um, about the the 2016 election. Um, in part because it makes me too sad. Yeah, I mean, I'm still reckoning with the the 2008 election, and right before it, I was really concerned that the only participation that Obama was going to offer us was to be part of the campaign or to vote, but that this wasn't really going to open us to the kind of, we are the change we've been waiting for, participatory democracy. Yeah. And it turned into the same old bailout of the usual suspects with tax money. and Yeah. Well, and I think he, he actually shut down his volunteer operations, right? I mean, it was a very purposeful decision. I know. And it's like, wait a minute. This is when it starts. I'm ready. I'm here. Yeah. I'll, I'll do something. Yeah. But it, that, there wasn't that invitation. Well, I mean, and this is where I think, this is where I am sympathetic to the people I met making the film and who I write about in the book who don't have a very deep or profound or personal conception of what democracy is or what it could be. Right. Because, I mean, I think the Obama example is a brilliant one because he did generate all this enthusiasm, right? And then shut down the organizations that would keep people mobilized and pressure him right. from the outside, right? That could have been this on-ramp to a kind of extra electoral democratic yes. mobilizing that I, you know, you'd think he would have really wanted, given that the Tea Party immediately rose right. to like pressure him from the other and side. And given that he was he was a community organizer by trade, 
right. and that we were so ready, we ended up doing Occupy in the absence, in the of, absence of an that. opportunity. And so I think, you know, people don't, democracy is not, that's what I came up with, democracy is not something people do very much of in their lives, and so it's no wonder we can't define it. I mean, that's, if democracy is a verb and not a noun, as we're arguing, then you kind of have to do it to know it. And if you're not ever given a chance to really do it, you're not given a chance to do it as a kid in your school, you're not given a chance to do it on your job where you have the sort of emperor, otherwise known as your boss, you probably don't have a union. And if you have a union, it might not be very democratically run. The right. chances are it's run by uh, you know, a sort of management structure, not unlike your workplace. So you're, you're invited to vote every once in a while. And when there is a candidate who really galvanizes you, he shuts down the institutions that would keep you engaged. So right. people, you know, I, I think that, that that accounts for a lot of our confusion about what, what democracy, well, democracy actually is. is. Right, because we think of it as voting. Yeah. And shouldn't it be like some kind of civic participation or well, one shouldn't thing, is a Yeah, but, but I mean, I, I talk in the book about how for the ancient Greeks who... Um, I find really interesting, despite all of their, you know, social and uh, social problems and the fact that they don't qualify as a democracy by any any stand, a modern standard. But you know, they would say elections are aristocratic because elections allow the rich and the well-born and the well-spoken to win. And so Athens, which is bizarrely sort of held up as this cradle of democracy, and yet we don't really know anything about how it was run, didn't have elections. It was all random selection to feed the juries to was ran, you know whoever showed up at the assembly made the decisions and then they had this council that sort of proposed ideas and actually ran the city and you know if you were a, a male citizen of Athens if you're one of those lucky human beings in that in that society that it was you were basically guaranteed to effectively serve in Congress mm -hmm. right so so I think it's an interesting thought experiment or sort of challenged us today because, you know, why, why do we think elections are the apex when this community would have thought it was just showed how bankrupt our democracy was and how much it didn't qualify as one? And I'm sure someone's mentioned it already to you, but the very last episode of Game of Thrones. I have not heard anything about it. Uh, I know so they, people are disappointed. Yeah, but they had this, you know, it's whatever. It's all these, you know, people fighting about different stuff and they're fighting over a throne. And in the end, there's this small group of people who've kind of survived the, 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 the elite of that group, the eight, you know, lords or whatever that are left. And they're saying, okay, well, the person who's going to be king is dead. Let's pick one. How are we going to pick? Well, we can kind of vote, whatever. And then the one intellectual says, well, well what if we let everybody have a vote? And they're like, what do you mean? You know, all the people, this way, everyone would be on board. And they just laugh at them. They're like, ah, <laughs> you're crazy. Yeah, I'll let my cat, I'll give my cat a vote and my horse a vote too. And uh, it was a really sweet commentary in a way on, on democracy. On, on, on Because this guy also, he wanted to just, he wasn't really a Democrat. He wanted to legitimize the choice too. Is that what That too, but he also, no, he was an idealist. Oh, interesting. He was. Okay. He thought, what if, we, what if we let people vote? Yeah. And they just laugh him down as if that's so crazy. The people, they're too stupid. They're, Does he, you know, do they really invoke like cats in these things? Yeah, yeah. They said, oh, I'll let my cat vote, my horse vote. Well, yeah. that's a very standard motif, actually. I found going back through the conservative tradition and to critics of democracy. So I'm thinking of Plato. I'm thinking of Burke. They all have these riffs, which are just like, what's going to be next? Like the ladies having a say and then the donkeys are going to get uppity. But this is, there's always, there's always right. slippery. So they're, they're quite accurate in terms of 
political philosophy because there's always a slippery slope. Argument. They go down some evolutionary scale yeah. as if it's white people, black people, women, dog. You know? <laughs> no, and so I quote this bit of the Republic where he says, you know, democracy is unbearable because like the dog thinks that it's as good as its mistress and the donkeys like, like bash into you on the street. So this idea of like literally that it's going to be this, this zoo of, uh, of non-human creatures, which, you know, in the book, I'm, I basically come out as totally being for. I mean, I think that's... The well, dogs should have a vote, actually, at this point, <laughs> you know. No, I'm like, well, why, why should we be limited? In terms of our conception of, like, who can, who, what lives matter, why should we right. be limited to human lives at this moment? You know, I mean, I think... We're the dominator species running out how many per day now? You know? uh, uh, it's, I mean, that's the thing. Maybe the fact that we're facing the extinction of a million species, that's what's on the horizon, according to climate scientists, right? Maybe that's a symptom of the fact that we don't have a way to account for these other life forms in our polity, you know? And so this, again, looking forward, what's the democracy to come? Well, maybe it's one where we can somehow, you know, corporations have personhood. Can a right? forest? Right, can a forest? Can't... Rather than being an externality of the market, what yeah. if it's a participant in decision-making? Yeah, or at yeah. least a recognized entity of some kind. So It's you know, a stakeholder at a the sta very least. A yeah. stakeholder. Exactly. <laughs> it's a nice neoliberal term. Yeah, like they love those. They need those. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So That's the, the foundations recognize stakeholders. Well, you're there almost you go. making me feel like I should watch Game of Thrones, but I've never No, it's okay. Okay. You got the, that was the uh, best that moment. That was the best part. Yeah. Okay. All right, I feel so And those places just dragons and stuff. <laughs> it's CGI. Go watch, go watch, better off watching, you know, Space Odyssey or something. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I've never even seen Star Trek Next Generation, so that's actually next yeah. on the list. Yeah. Make it so. <laughs> <laughs> you, you ended with something that, that, again, I hate to be so Jewish on you here, but, you know, you're talking about us being in this sort of interregnum. Yeah. You know, this, this intertidal moment and that we can be, we, we're, we're, Perpetual midwives for democracy, which is the Exodus myth, that they leave the oppression of slavery and go through the birth canal, right? The water's open, and, you, and Moses midwives the Israelites to... Yeah, I like that. To social justice, or, you know, they didn't have democracy, but to uh, 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 that kind of freedom. Yeah. And that's sort of what, what you're arguing is, no, it's not that we get to Canaan. It's that we're in this ongoing midwifery. You know, we're, we're doing it all the time. It's being born, and we're just... Yeah. Well, I wanted to, you know, I wanted also to bring the feminism of the book mm -hmm. into the fore, because... Subtly, though. I mean, I know it can't be more feminist than childbirth, but you don't call it feminism. Yes, and I think this is the thing, because for me, I'm very frustrated by feminism being, you know, put away in its little section of life, right? So you It's know, a course you can take. It's a yeah. course you can <laughs> 321, take. 321, right. It's a certain type of magazine that only women read, because a guy reading those magazines would be very odd. And so, you know, for me, I was like, how do I infuse this this whole treatise with a feminist sensibility. And part of it is that, well, I have an advantage, I think, over some other writers in this field who write about democracy and that as a woman, I think I'm better attuned at hearing women as thinkers and right. seeing women through history as doers. So the book is just populated very equitably. The characters, the people I refer to, my citational practice is feminist. You right. Know? 
Uh, and I think that sadly that sets the book apart because I did research going into this project and I could find almost no sort of general interest trade books about democracy written by women, mm. which I found very dispiriting. I was like, this is part of why our democracy is so broken. If only a certain type of man is reflecting on this problem for a broad public, right. then no wonder we can't get it right. But with the, the idea of midwifing democracy, I'm also responding to past figures who I have learned a lot from and gleaned a lot from. So for example, Plato, right? Plato does a brilliant job, actually, in all of his weirdness in the Republic, in identifying certain pathologies. He talks about people being swept up in unruly passions and the way that wisdom and virtue get sidelined. And that he talks extensively about the problem of oligarchy and the fact that it's the division between the rich and the poor mm -hmm. that creates conditions for the demagogue. But his solution is, you know, okay, well, let's put the philosophers in charge. If we just have the smart people, and he is gender fair in this. Yeah. Philosopher kings and queens. But he basically says, if the smart people could just come in, they could fix it. And we'd be done with this thing, and we'd have our perfect platonic yeah. society. Rousseau. Rousseau brilliantly talked about the founder's paradox, the problem of democracy. How do you create a democratic people out of an undemocratic people, right? Democracy seems to need in advance the conditions it needs to flourish. Right. So there's a chicken or the egg problem. Well, his dream was that this enlightened legislator would come in and just make all these rules that were great, and then you'd be done. Yep. We have the same myth in our society with the founding fathers. These enlightened guys got together. They were super smart. They figured it out. You know, they're the founders, and now we will respect the Constitution. Yeah. And so I think, in a way, the image of being perennial midwives is a retort to all of that. It's like, no, there's no group of enlightened guys or guys and gals who are going to save us. And, and write something in stone that we can just live by as though it is a religious text or something like that, right? Like, we are going to have to do this humbling work of generating a new world together. And so, yeah, let us not aspire to be founding fathers. Let's be perennial midwives, birthing democracy anew. And that, you know, that, that, that's not just a vision for the future. That actually describes how the good parts of our social order have come to be through people playing that role, you know, and... And we do ourselves a disservice when we think that it was just some smart guys in a in a room writing some brilliant old document. But that's that them's revolutionary words. Yeah. <laughs> revolutionary, you know. But it is nor the normative revolution. Yeah, but I think it is. It is also this thing of like, you know, be the change you want to see. Like for me, the democracy I want to see is one that is just feminist. So that's mm -hmm. why the book aspires to just do it. Not discreetly, but sort of just as though it's just natural. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. Don't make a big deal out of it. But let's let's um, let's listen to a wider array of voices and and not not have it be some big thing that needs to have a big red arrow pointing to it. <laughs> Sounds good to me. That's me. I'll point. I'm gonna put a big red arrow pointing right at you on the thing. You've been on Team Human. Our guest today was Astra Taylor, the author of Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone. You can find out more about Astra's work at whatisdemocracy.info. We'll be back in the basement media squat here at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism again next week with new strategies for human intervention in the machine. Come visit us at teamhuman.fm where you'll find more information about our supporters and guests, the work they're doing, resources to get involved, and ways to find the others. 
Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.